My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Nothing excites me more than having someone like Laura Snapes on the show. You may know her work in Pitchfork and ME or at The Guardian where she is the deputy music editor. I have long admired her writing and we've been aiming to talk uh, for some time now and I'm so glad that we finally have this interview to share with listeners. We cover a lot of interesting ground talking about the psychogeology of songs, the climate, and specifically how it might affect things like outdoor music festivals. We spend some time discussing our mutual pal, previous transmissions guest David John Morris, our very definition of the term Americana, some of her recent listening, including reflections on works by Julie Byrne, Be Your Own Pet, Rawson Murphy, and Jesse Lanza, And, of course, we have to end up some strange places, so how about the occult roots of Cornwall's Aphex Twin? We also spend a lot of time talking about naming things, uh, specifically naming musical genres. I was recently on a call with my buddy Bob Holmes of the Ambient Country Podcast and Sus, and we were talking a little bit about what it means to apply a genre term. I think musicians are a little bit anarchistic in terms of general temperament and the act of being lumped together with other people as one thing or another probably feels very suspect on a creative level and i understand that of course i value that resistance but naming something be it a nascent regional scene or an emerging genre does allow for different kinds of conversations i was recently struck by an ursula k le guin quote that i came across over at the marginalian where she writes In most cases of people actually to one another, human communication cannot be reduced to information. The message not only involves, it is a relationship between speaker and hearer. When we name something, we help create pathways towards understanding it. And I think that that's true of songs. And I'm so psyched to share this talk with you. It was such a blast to engage with Laura and I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. Before we get into it, though, if transmissions and all of the other independent cultural work we do at Aquarium Drunkard means something to you, you can support us continuing to do it by pledging over on Patreon. By pledging there, you allow us to continue making this show, paying our contributors, and you help keep those servers humming. Check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon, and a major thank you to all of you who already pledge. We appreciate your support so much. All right, let's get into it. Here's Laura Snipes on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Thank you. 
that big of a deal if it does. We're a pretty naturalistic show, as we found out on the the David John Morris episode, which was like taking a walk with somebody only yeah, yeah. a one-sided a one-sided walk <laughs> i saw him last week for a walk and i was joking that i should record this episode from the same car park that he recorded from i knew exactly where he was we both agreed that it's a place that we go to to like think and listen to music and cry it's a great car park yeah. that's i mean that's a pretty incredible thing i um I feel like we have less and less spaces like that in America, you know, like these sort of like communal spaces or a place you go. But I remember being a kid, certainly. Right. And like going specific places, carving out these little spots. So, yeah, he could start like a podcast from that car park if he wanted. You know, it'd probably be a pretty it's a pro- probably a novel enough concept, you know, to yeah. work. It, it sounded like, um, yeah, there was like rave stuff happening up there as well. That whole little stretch of coastline, uh, coastline has been kind of like a festival this year. Um, yeah. The teens have really taken over. Yeah, yeah. Well, so those would be Gen Gen Z, Gen Zers? I think so, yeah. It's a, it's a very young crowd. down. I've been living in my hometown for like two and a half months, um, and it's a very young crowd down at the beach at the moment. You have to go find the secret beaches, which 16-year-olds cannot drive to because you can't drive here till you're 17. Right, right. Okay, okay. <laughs> Wait, and so your hometown, you grew up in Cornwall as well? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, w- there's so much that I want to get into, but before we do, I, I I, was going back. We've obviously been talking about doing this for a minute, and um, you emailed me something a while ago that I thought was so great and I wanted to start the episode by by noting what you had said. You said, after sending me kind of a, a, a nice note about the, the show, you responded, I found the nicest thing about getting off Twitter is that people occasionally email to say that they liked a piece, which somehow feels nicer than a smattering of faves. And I was thinking about how prescient that was because you got off Twitter a minute ago, right? Yeah, but like more, How long? more than two years ago. Yeah, yeah. So even before it got as weird as it is now, you know, it's a very strange thing. And I wondered if just to start off our conversation here on transmissions, if we could talk about your your views on social media, because I found obviously these are useful tools for sort of getting your work out into the internet ecosystem. But you really do end up feeling like you're um, working for them rather than the other way around. And I just wonder what navigating like that has been for you in this age where so much of what we do has to be in the sort of digital realm. It is something, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely I wouldn't have the career that I do if it wasn't for Twitter. And I'm really grateful for all of the time that I spent on there. And I also don't, don't take for granted the fact that I found it kind of easy to quit because I have a staff position as a music journalist, which is incredibly rare. Sure. So, you know, I'm not a freelancer. <laughs> kind of That's true. This is out into the ether. Um, I... There are ways in which I miss it. You know, sometimes it was incredibly fun. I made friends off there. I had a very long-term relationship that came off there. And also as an editor, it's a really useful place um, in terms of when you follow lots of music journalists, you see ideas start to coalesce. Like somebody might say something, then a few days later, somebody says something else and you see sort of ways of thinking kind of start to come together and you think, oh, is this something we should be keeping an eye on? Or you see a writer kind of like do a little tweet thread and then you message them and it's like, this could be a piece. Like, can I commission you to do this? Like, don't just like ping it yeah. in these four tweets. 
so that all of it um was incredibly useful and i do miss that um but uh it just it got to the point perhaps after it having been like a year of the pandemic as well where just like mental health wise i couldn't stay on there because um i kind of I, I, it had truly never occurred to me before um but i just didn't have any concept of like how to have self-worth without that kind of like internet feedback loop um and which related to actually um because the first time i emailed you it was because i really liked the episode you did with jen wasner from um flock of dimes in my oak and uh i remember finding it really profound at the time so i actually re-listened to it in the past couple of days to see like if i could tell if i could remember what it was that i took from that because i guess sometimes when when something hits you like a few years ago the hope is that you sort of like integrate that and then maybe it doesn't quite seem so striking to you if you listen to it again but I did listen to it again and she was talking about exactly that sort of thing like mistaking self-optimization self for self-compassion and that idea of like always wanting more and it not really kind of like linking up to who you are inside and yeah it was still really resonant to listen to it and I think I was feeling a lot of those things at that time um my profile yeah. is up like it, it is it is extant um because elon musk used to be able to delete used to be able to deactivate for a whole year just like go in once turn it back on turn it off again and leave but he changed that now you have to like log in every month and then deactivate again otherwise it disappears so it's just there um but i don't go on it yeah yeah i think that right now we're in this moment and this won't air for a couple weeks so everything i say will end up being completely uh out of date by the time anybody hears it because everything just moves like a million miles a second but right now we're in this day where there's all these different twitter apps that are clones right you know threads or uh blue sky or i mean any others there's there's i mean there's plenty um but i was really struck by seeing like a side-by-side -side comparison of all these things and it's like such a drag that the future you know this bright future that was promised for decades and decades uh has resulted in like five versions of the same app from like three companies that own everything you know what i mean it's like it feels like such a waste the 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 possibility of the internet because one of the things that I think is really that I have to focus on a lot myself making this show is the idea that there's some some value in putting anything out into it, right? But I mean, I do think that it's easy to mistake these sort of cloistered bad versions of the internet that we have uh, been served with the actual thing itself, right? Like this this tool of information, this this really powerful thing you know even just like the idea of being able to keep up with each other via email you know that's still like sort of uh it's not like technology is the problem solely right but it's like our relationship to it that's what i've been really struck by lately yeah i think um you know there are ways in which these tools really do kind of establish a sense of community even if it's not actual community like there's been so many musicians and journalists which i've been in who i've been in touch with because of those things which where i would never have had like contact or like a rapport or you you know, kind of exchanging messages with them before, but it's all kind of folded in together, I suppose, into this big approval or disapproval machine. And depending on which way your brain works, it can be quite hard to kind of like separate those two things out, perhaps. Big time. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And it is, that's, it's, yeah, yeah, the relationships that we have through it. And I mean, I thought of stuff like some of the stuff that that I'm excited to speak with you about when I went back and realized that like 2016 is longer ago than it feels like to me in a certain way because it really feels like right around that time 2016 2017 this 
weird shift began to occur in like on so many different fronts, right? Obviously, things like Brexit and Trump and all of that stuff, you know, signaled these massive sea changes in the mood of things. And then that leads right into the pandemic, into this whole shifting sense of of self. So I feel like right now, as we wonder, like, what role should we have on the Internet? Like, how should we use the Internet then? You know, because it feels to me like we've reached this point of like, well, clearly we shouldn't use it like that. You know, Um, at least that's what it feels like to me. Like, even if it's unspoken, even if we're all still on these apps, a lot of us at least, unlike you who had the guts to just like get off, you know, um, which is a really good, you know, it's a, it's a good move. But yeah, I don't know. I just, I think, I think about it a lot. And I wondered because for me doing this show gives me an opportunity to like connect with people like Jen, whose work is so powerful and, and whose creative outlook is such a, a, a beautiful and challenging one. Right. So it's like, I find myself questioning as I think about putting stuff out onto the internet. It's like, okay, just put yourself in conversations where you're challenged and excited by what the person is saying, you know? And so that's the stuff that when that gets out on the internet and we, and we wouldn't be able to share this if it weren't for that tool that connects us. So it's like, it's very much a, I don't know. It's not a complete binary, <laughs> you know, it's just, just a weird thing to navigate. <laughs> and yeah, you know, as a, as a, you know, I probably wouldn't know what, well, Aquarium Drunken and Transmissions was if it wasn't having like found them over probably Twitter in the first place. And, you know, the sorts of conversations that you have on this podcast with people like Jen or with David Morris the other week, who's somebody I've known most of my life, um, yeah. long form and they're digressive and they are perhaps not artists who would get that sort of opportunity to speak at length about both their work but also their worldview as well in in other formats you know even like speaking as an editor i've interviewed jen before um but you know it's there are there are print space limitations and you're kind of you know on the on an article or anything on the guardian i can click on the back end and i can see how many people read it how long they read it for where they went and looked after that so it's quite kind of you know, unsparing. Whereas I think that, you know, spaces like this for artists to be able to have those conversations are really valuable and they are the antithesis to that sort of, you know, pithy one line, not terribly nuanced sort of forum. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's important and cool to consider the idea that like, there's room for all of this, right? Like that's the beautiful thing of, of this medium having this online space it's like we can have a show where i think like the the mass audience has dis aside from things like the guardian or aside from these really truly established media brands obviously the nicheification i don't know if know if that's even a, the way to put it you know but the the sort of carving out of smaller more um kind of cult minded, you know, following, you know what I mean? Like 3000 people who listen to transmissions, I think you would be like really psyched to know who the 3000 people are, you know what I mean? Or something like that, which isn't not that we haven't had episodes that have gotten a lot more or, you know, less, (laughs) but um, sometimes way less. And it's like, yeah, but that was a cool conversation. You know, some of my favorite episodes are the ones that like, they don't explode. Um, And that's just part of what we do you know and it's really going back and reading so much of the stuff of your of yours it was like the stuff that really helped me shift this show like seeing your framing of let's say like the 2016 piece you did on 
cosmic americana which is a, a sort of a loaded remains like a loaded term <laughs> but it was so great because i was like this is kind of aquarium drunkard core it was so cool to see it viewed through your lens you know what i mean yeah i guess with that you know so to sort of describe it it's a piece where you know i was a big fan of people like and I still am. His Golden Messenger and Joan Shelley and William Tyler and Chris Forsyth. And, you know, I knew that some of them had connections to like the late, uh, the late Jack Rose as well. Um, and like Walker mm-hmm. was coming up and, you know, speaking, you know, I live in the UK and have been to America very sparingly. And I know that like some of those people exist in the same like geographical scene and like, you know, Phil Cook and MC Taylor from His Golden Messenger. And then some of them were more right. spread out than that. But it seemed to me from a very long way away that what they were doing was all kind of like slightly resonant with each other. And there seemed to be connections, whether it was like collaborations or the record labels, you know, being on Paradise of Bachelors and, you know, which seemed to be like upstreaming to merge for a while um, and playing things like the Hopscotch Festival. It seemed like there was some connections there. And, you know, speaking from a purely pragmatic sort of like, at the time I was a freelance journalist, I didn't work at The Guardian, from a purely pragmatic pitching perspective, it was like, I know I probably couldn't get an individual piece on any one of those artists away, but if you sort of frame it as this bigger thing, and, and yeah. you know, most, pe- most people were happy to talk, there were a couple of people who didn't want to speak for it, which is fine and fair enough, because, you know, I understand that artists hate that kind of like grouping and scene names and, you know, those sorts of umbrellas, they can seem limiting, but I knew that sure. the way that I could get a piece like that away and speak to lots of people who I really liked. And and also, you know, I do understand now being, I, I had been an editor before that, but, you know, being an editor at The Guardian now, I know that you're probably more likely to find a readership if you are pulling a bunch of things together like that than expecting somebody to read 800 or 1200 or 1600 words on an artist that they might not really know about. Um, whereas, you know, if you keep it, keep it moving quite fast, and it, and it moves between like who the people are and where they come from and why this thing might be happening now, that's perhaps more likely to keep people engrossed. Um, but yeah, you know, I know this kind of thing can wind up artists, but um, I did, I, re- I reread it. It, it. I was prepared for it to be bad when I reread it, but I think it's okay. No, you did really, I like, I enjoyed rereading it too in a major way. And I love, I mean, well, first off, you made space for people like um, Steve Gunn, I think even says in the piece, like he dis- he really dislikes the term Americana. Yeah. And um. And I was surprised to see, I think it was Brendan from Paradise of Bachelors who said he, no, it was William who said he loved the the term Americana, maybe William Tyler, um, which I'm surprised because that just speaks to what 2016 was, you know, I mean, like, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to dance around it. I'm trying to figure out some thoughtful way to phrase it, but essentially like it might've been easier to. Uh, embrace a term like Americana before we've seen uh, the rough state of American discourse and culture, you know, over these last however many years. And I think about that, but I think in some ways that's what the cosmic thing allows the wiggle room required for... um, (laughs) What was that? That doesn't really mean anything, but it sounds good. It doesn't mean anything, and yet it is helpful enough because you need something that can help create like a hazier space where the literal. I mean, I think like obviously, if I remember right, I mean, you're talking about Joan. I mean, Joan Shelley's one of the people who's mentioned. You know, who is you know, very who's a traditionally minded artist, right? You know, or you get like a, a Forsyth, Chris Forsyth, who's somebody who. I speak too often enough and his his sort of 
I mean, there's moments on his last record that sound like the cars, you know, like way more like the cars than John Fahey or something like that, you know, or William, who I was just listening to his 12 inch last night with uh, Forte, like, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's fantastic. It's just, it's such a, a banger, I guess. That's the only word I can, I can come up with. It's just, it rules. Right. And so you see that like in the years since those lines have gone even further, but, or, or I mean, the net has been cast even wider is maybe what I sort of mean. Like, I feel like you could make a pretty um, honest case the way William does in your piece, uh, you know, you, Sun Ra, how is Sun Ra not an Americana artist, right? Like what other, what other place could have produced Sun Ra, you know, who is this one of a kind cultural figure who's just as shaped by the cosmicism of American culture, you know, the space race as he is the hermetic discourse or whatever. So it's like Sun Ra, particularly American in a way. And it's almost like the part of me that gets worried about any sort of like national, like pride driven tendencies regarding political or, or geographic locations. Part of me like is, is reluctant, you know, like I don't like, uh, um, a banner but at the same time when you see how it can broaden the conversation it's why we and i guess what i'm saying is what you're talking about i understand the desire to name it and what naming it helps us do right establish a sense of connection where maybe it didn't it wasn't apparent that there was one you know and to me like it's a it's sort of like the weird inverse of specificity is how you get to universal connections or, or or things like that does that does that add up in your experience um yeah i think so it makes me think about two things i mean one i think in the uk we probably use the term americana differently to how you do in the u.s like in the u.s sure from how from what i'm aware it seems maybe more sort of like a kind of like a roots music thing whereas i would say in the uk we use it almost as like a standing for alt country and also as like a distancing from country because as you know as a nation we're still kind of squeamish about country i think about a magazine <laughs> uncut and to a certain extent mojo where it's like these are sort of like yeah. classic rock but with a slightly kind of like offbeat kind of like cosmic kind of like lens to them so i do think that we're probably using it differently and it's funny like and until you said it just then I don't really think of Americana as like, oh yeah, like Amer Americanisms, like American iconography. I kind of think of it more as just like, yeah, like alt country kind of thing. So I think geographically we're probably using it very differently. Um, and yeah, I suppose um, the other thing it makes me think about is I grew up reading Enemy um, at the time where they, you know, Enemy's one of its great skills and then obviously something that has annoyed people and that they haven't always got right is naming and defining scenes. Um, and the one that I grew up on was what I think they were calling like the new rock revolution, which is an awful, like really, really clunky title. Um, yeah. you know, and then I think new rave came after that. And then, you know, and then I, I worked there twice in my twenties and was there where well, we, we tried to like invent the names of some scenes, which then, which didn't really stick. Like I remember sports metal being kind of like a hilarious one. And then sports metal. Yeah. I can't even remember who sports metal was now. Um, <laughs> and then I can't think what any of the more successful of them were. I mean, I, there probably weren't that many successful ones at that point in the 2010s. Um, but yeah, I suppose, I don't know again, if it's perhaps a uniquely British thing, the idea of, um, yeah, like grouping things together as a way of trying to make them make sense. Yeah, I don't know 100%. I mean, uh, I, I, I understand what you're saying. And to a certain degree, like I even think of um, uh, 
you know, having been writing about music on the internet for, you know, 15 or 20 years almost at this point, you know, it's like you do start to recognize that like, um, there are, there are group, there, there were, I think more, there, there was more of a necessity to try to group things. So like, I remember the, you know, chill wave or something like that, where it's like, okay, there is a, there's a sense here, but what's interesting about something like chill wave is that stuff got grouped together um, like I think of like real estate alongside something like Toro y moi. And then over the, the years, you know, you see the way they diverge and, um, and follow different sort of, um, trajectories, I would say. But at the same time, you can see why they were sort of linked together in the first place. You know, sonically, there are similarities. So it's like our brains are wired to look for those connections and those threads. That's how we make sense of things. And I I think that there's a lot of value in it because a lot of what you were using the term Americana, and, and I love that you brought up that distinction between the way you might use it and the way that I might use it, which is which makes a certain amount of sense. Alt country was another term that like seemed incredibly distasteful to all of the musicians who were called it. You know what I mean? Um, and I think Americana falls into that as well. Americana definitely has that T-Bone Burnett sensibility, the sort of uh, uh, Jillian Welch, that sort of thing where it's like, I can see that there's like a real connective, uh, almost traditionalism. And another thing your article included, of course, was Amanda, Petrogish speaking about the sort of Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack, which placed a premium on traditionalism and formalism in a certain like root sense. And so that you can hear that in Joan Shelley. At this point, you don't hear it in Riley Walker so much, right? Because Riley Walker's making Chicago post rock albums at this point or whatever. And so it's beautiful and fun to watch the tendrils, but all of that stuff was classified for me earlier as like new weird america or whatever you know which whatever that was the that was the stand-in that got it all arthur magazine sort of like core in my head so it's like you have to have those frameworks i think those frameworks can be very helpful i think that they can be limiting too but of course that's the case with any anything right so it's like you gotta create the space for people to diverge from it as people did in the article i think everybody was coming from their own unique little corners of that world. Yeah, yeah, and everybody's gone off kind of like somewhere uh somewhere different now. Yeah. I think his like his golden messenger at this point listening to some of this stuff it's almost like uh man, like MC's records have stayed similar in a in a way, but they've they they have embraced a kind of like warm heartedness that is like really interesting as the world gets seemingly coarser and more like um caustic i feel like i hear a lot more compassion and like so- somehow sonically like a kind of compassion and a willingness to to really lean into um something that feels kind of restorative i don't know if that's i don't know how that registers with you um i think um all of his records uh, or many of his recent records have been like that but the new one which is coming out i did find to be like more strikingly different i've only listened to it a couple of times but it did feel like yeah away from that a little bit maybe been um done some different things with production i've not i've only listened to it a few times yeah i have only listened to a few singles but i do have it all to listen to soon so that's something that i would love to 
I hadn't thought to speak to you about, but I would love to hear how you balance like what you listen to versus what you don't, because I find myself that's one of my chief frustrations in um, in life is wanting to shine light on so much more than I am able to sometimes, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, it's probably speaks to some terrible tendencies in myself to like overinflate my importance of speaking on matters. But does that, did you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, I'll always listen to like my returning favorites. Um, and then, you know, what new artists I do, uh, that, that I like what they do, um, who are people who are bubbling up, you know, from an editorial perspective, I, do generally try and listen to the big stuff that's coming out, you know, if we're at the point of being like, do we want to do a cover with this person? Do we want to kind of like really get behind this record? Um, and, and that can happen from like the perspective of here's a really big artist who, you know, could feasibly fit on the cover, but do we think they deserve it with this record? To, you know, I had a really visceral moment like several months ago when I first got the Julie, the Julie Byrne record, which just came out the other day. You know, I've liked her since I first heard of her, um, but we had never interviewed her. And I think by the point I got to track two of her new record, like I took taken off my headphones and said to my colleague, like, we're doing a feature on this. This is an incredible album. And I didn't even know, you know, the very kind of devastating backstory to it at that point. Um, and, yeah. 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 You know, recommendations from friends that there, there will be some like once in a while there'll be something will come along where it's like i don't i don't need to sort of like invest time listening to this because i know we're not going to cover it i don't particularly like it it's a sort of like you know a catalog artist sort of like fourth or fifth record or something where it's just like i can catch up with this one at a, at a later date um but i do generally i've had sort of limited listening capacity recently because this makes me sound very old but like I still keep all my music on iTunes and my big computer with all my music on is stored somewhere else at the moment. And so I've just had like what's on my phone, um, which has kind of grown a little dusty. And I, I go find myself going back to the same records. I'm a real replayer. Like if I love something, I will listen to it to death. <laughs> yeah. What What are some of the records that we might hear on your phone if it's not too personal to reveal your, your hard downloads? Um, the, I would say the one that I played most this year, which isn't out till September, is the new Rasheen Murphy record, which is mm. probably like my favorite record I've heard in several years. I think it's unbelievable. Um, also, the new Be Your Own Pet album. Um, I loved them when I was a teenager, and obviously they haven't put out a record since like 2006 or something like that. And um, yeah. I like to run to it. It makes you run really fast. Um, I think they've done a really astonishing job of balancing Gem and Pearl singing from like a grown-up perspective but then still sounding as bratty and as feral and exciting as they did when they were like 17 um that seems really rare to me to be able to like re-bottle that teenage energy that teenage light yeah um uh yeah i think those those and, and the julie Byrne record and the jesse lanza record which is out in july um i listen to that a lot okay excellent excellent that's cool i love when things like that happen where you have like some limiting factor that because i mean that's something that i think is also like <laughs> something that we miss right like when i was a, like starting in junior high or middle school or whatever you know it's like if i got an album like i was gonna listen to it like a lot it wasn't going to be something i listened to two or three times like the investment, even something I didn't like, right? Like you would listen to that over and over again because you're like, I invested something in this. So I find like more and more 
just as we're questioning our relationships with social media, I think maybe hopefully people are, are questioning their relationships with, you know, musical media and like, well, what is, what does it mean to invest in a record that you want? Because that's what we see right now with like, say streaming television shows that just go away. I think it would be foolish to not expect that that will eventually become the case with like music as well. Right. Does that, you know, that, that like we, we shouldn't necessarily count on any of these, these like companies, these private companies to have preservation in mind. Does, how does, how does that sit with you? Totally. Yeah. Like, you know, on, on my big computer, which is currently stored, I have like the whole Joni Mitchell catalog, the whole Neil Young, I have all the Joanna Newsom records, but they're not currently accessible to me. And once in a while I'll be like, oh, I just really want to listen to like Hajira or have one on me while I'm driving. And you go to Spotify and you're like, oh, they're not on there. And I understand why they're not on there. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I, I respect those artists' decisions. No, you can't totally. On that. Um, I often sometimes think about um, also, I can't remember when this happened, maybe like early to early 2010s, when they just lost all of MySpace, like everything that had been on it before. And it's like, wow, there must be so much music that was in there that perhaps wasn't kind of preserved anywhere else. Um, but yeah, I think your point about scarcity is really important. Like I remember, I'm 34, um, and I always feel really happy that I can remember analog life, like before life was entirely digital, that I kind of straddle both of them. And I remember having to wait six weeks for the auto, the debut Autolux album to turn up in my local record shop. And I, I would go in there like, every other day after school being like, is it here yet? Is it here yet? No, it's still not here. And like the anticipation probably certainly made me like enjoy it more. Um, And, you know, so I I grew up in, and I am currently right now in Cornwall, which is where David Morris is also from, if anybody was listening to that episode as well. It's as far Southwest as you can go in the UK. If you picture the UK, it's like the toe at the end. And, uh, you know, it's more connected now. Like you get more music, more big musicians come and play down here. Like I saw the Pet Shop Boys play here the other day. But when I was a teenager, nobody came here. And so if anybody came, you would go to it just because it was the thing that was on, which on one hand is how I've seen the band Keen like eight times because they just happened to come a bunch of times <laughs> over a couple of years. It was a very good debut album. But also... Uh, it was somewhere only they knew. Yes, truly. <laughs> it was just us. Um, but then yeah, to mention David again, like he's a very pivotal figure in my life. When I was like 17, 18, 19, he put on these shows at this little venue in a town called Penryn, which is like the small town next to the slightly bigger town called Falmouth. It's on the river estuary. Yeah. Um, yeah, this venue, Miss Peapods. It was the sort of place where by day you could go and have like a slice of zucchini cake or beetroot cake and like probably the first place that we would have soy milk, like kind of like a hippie cafe. Um, and then in the evening, sometimes um, he would book these shows there and he booked things like Sunburned Hand of the Man, Jack Rose, Human Bell, Arboretum, Monotonics, Hawk and a Hacksaw, um, God, who else did I see there? All that kind of thing. Like to come back to that idea of like yeah. weird Americana. And I had never heard of any of these stuff, but I had older friends who I'd made through working in that record shop that I was talking about and they were going to it. And I lived in that little town. It was the first time I'd lived away from my parents. And so I went just because you could walk to these shows and I would go to anything yeah. because there were so few gigs. And I mean, it's such an incredible thing to have seen such like amazing musicians just because they were on my doorstep, just purely by chance. But that is, yeah, a sort of, um, musical taste which really stuck with me and also music community which was forged through scarcity and you know I've lived in London pretty much um you know on and off since I was like 21 and there's untold riches there you could go and see something like that every night of the week but you know this is my own sort of personal like 
option paralysis or kind of fear of going out, whatever. I never go and see all of that stuff with the same frequency that I did growing up in a town where it was the only thing that was on. You know, until recently, I lived up the road from Cafe Otto in East London, which is the sort of place that books that kind of artist like basically every other day of the week. And I hardly ever went there, perhaps just because I wasn't in the habit of it or I didn't really know other people who did. And so, yeah, I um, it's not that one is better than the other, but um, I really value the idea of like a small place where if something good is going on, it's going to draw a certain crowd, it's going to create community I don't know. I perhaps, well, most probably that's because, because that's what I grew up in. That's what I find kind of easy to be a part of. But yeah, I'm so grateful that David was booking those shows when I was at that kind of impressionable age where it's like, now I know what ecstatic piece is and like, you know, all of these kind of like fringe things that came off of that. Like, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have the taste that I do or have written the, the pieces that I've written if it weren't for those shows. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. In his last book, Lenny Kay, uh, I think it's lightning striking, he talks about how Eno would use this term like senius, like the scene, collective genius of a scene, right? And I mean, like, I think that what you're talking about is something that it's probably really important that we retain like notions like that, those pre-digital notions, because um, they're really important elements of what makes something really like work. Like, you know, I, I grew up in a town, um, like a very rural town in Arizona called Coolidge. And I was like in my 20s, like my mid 20s, when I realized that like Lee Hazelwood... Uh, Waylon Jennings and uh, Dwayne Eddy had all kind of did time in that same town in the, you know, like early 60s or whatever. And they were all on this like radio station. And to me, it was like that was music that I already loved. But like understanding that there was a regional connection, that like those were real people who bounced off each other and who Lee Hazelwood often is credited with sort of helping inspire Spectre's wall of sound approach. Phil Spector, obviously, no one's favorite human, <laughs> but uh, undeniably pretty good at recording music. Um, but um, yeah, so when I read your piece about Aphex Twin and the sort of regional connection there, to me it was like, that's something that I think is really is really beautiful. And the danger of letting go of that in a digital age where nothing is bound by place 
there's obviously lots of beautiful things. You and I are able to do this podcast right now because we're not bound by being in the same place. And thank goodness. But at the same time, it's really important to remember what happens when there are sort of physical concerns involved, you know, and like being in a place with people, hearing things you wouldn't necessarily have heard, you know. Um, I went and saw my friend Michael Krasner put on a show at, he has a, a pizza restaurant here in Arizona called Chibo, and he had Max Naus, this incredible guitarist performing, and then Fawn Fables. And I had remembered like some stuff from Fawn Fables, but then seeing Fawn Fables in 2023, like they're t- the, the principal musicians' daughters are like also in the band now and they're teenagers and they're doing this like folk stomp. I had no idea what I was in for. You know what I mean? And it's like, I would not have been there had you described to me what it was going to be, mm-hmm. but I was there. And even if I didn't love it, it was an experience. And to me, that's something that's like, we don't want to lose that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to lose that, at least, in in our musical lives. I think it's important to retain a little of that. Totally, yeah. Um, by the way, are you in the middle of, like, the crazy heat wave? Are you in Arizona at the moment? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How is that? Well, it's so weird. You know, I've lived in Arizona my entire life. And uh, as we are of course, describing we're in the midst of a very, very, very terrible heat wave. Um, our June was far more mild than it usually is. And, um, it was almost like a, a fake out. I feel like, because like what we were getting hit with now, it's very, it's very unpleasant. And this isn't in, um, this is a strange place to live and a very strange place to be on the forefront of our changing planet, you know? Adapting to these changes is of top importance and yet feels so frustratingly um, unacted upon, which is another thing that, by the way, listening to Steve Gunn's Way Out Weather, uh, getting ready for this conversation with you, struck me. I think we're going to look back on like Steve Gunn's Way Out Weather as like Time of the Last Persecution by Bill Fay or something, like a record that feels like a little bit like it's a prophecy, you know? But obviously Steve was just noting what was happening at the time. It's just happening more so now. But I think about how we're finally starting to hear artists addressing climate change in in some ways, right? Or or incorporated into their their work. I wonder if anything on that front is interesting to you right now. Um yeah, I mean, you know, Coldplay have been trying and I think that they kind of admitted that it was very difficult perhaps, you know, being a, a band that tours with the level of infrastructure that they require. Um it felt like there was a, when music festivals came back here in 2021 the first time after the pandemic there were festivals that had a lot more like UK centric bookings than they would usually have like end of the road, which is, you know, a very like Americana quote unquote kind of festival. Sure. Um, does, <laughs> you know, it, I guess musicians are just in such a terrible position where it's like touring is the only way they could make any money. And the only way you can tour is to tour internationally because, you know, your markets are probably, if you're a certain type of artist, like the UK, you know, UK and Europe and the US and, you know, what do you, gonna do like you know unless spotify suddenly starts paying loads more and you can afford to kind of like stay at home and not tour 
um, I did really notice it recently. Um, we were at Glastonbury, you know, the Guardian is the, the festival's media partner. So we produce a huge amount of content from there and it was brutally hot. I'm sorry, I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit and it's nowhere near what you were experiencing. But in centigrade, it was like 32 and there's hardly any shade at the festival. And it felt, it felt yeah. finishing. Um, and year on year, you can sort of notice that creeping up at that kind of event to you know, the degree that I think in five or six years, those festivals may come to feel inhospitable or they're going to have to, you know, build some new kind of like buildings infrastructure on the sites just to provide more shade. It really makes you wonder what, I mean, like, I hate like a doomy, I, I don't like doom forecasty vibes, you know what I mean? Because it's not that they're not realistic. <laughs> they are, of course. Like, you know, it's like, but thinking of how we're going to engage with things like live music, the, the pandemic, I think, helped remind all of us how important and healing, like the, the act of coming together and like experiencing music together. It like legitimately is an important part of our lives. And I think that most people I know would like to keep it, but it has become... You know, first the recording industry became inhospitable to the artists who relied on it, and now it's starting to happen even with touring, right? Like these bands, it's it's increasingly harder. And it's because as a society we have devalued these things, unfortunately. But it makes me wonder if like part of the necessary corrective is all of us remembering that we do have sort of a responsibility responsibility makes it sound so duty bound. I don't mean it like that. I mean it like in a good way, like, but you sort of have a responsibility to find the things that you like that are happening around you and, and try to participate in those in some way, you know, to some level and show support to people on, on the ground level. And to me, like regionalism is just, that's kind of one nice way you can do that. Right. Is like find who's doing weird DIY stuff in your neck of the woods. And, connect with them because those are the sorts of connections that like i'm sure you know people like we were talking about from your piece you know riley walker phil cook you know these guys some of their collaborations go back decades you know to the people who they first met when they were first doing this stuff and that's what happens on the ground level you know so i wonder if as we deal with like climate change if part of this the necessary deal will be stay close to home a little bit too you know what i mean like encourage that community on the ground level or how i don't i'm not sure how that what that looks like yeah i mean you know uh we have a comments section on most pieces on the guardian and certainly in the music section they can be quite cantankerous um and we <laughs> wait music fans <laughs> cantankerous guardian reading music fans um this week we ran a piece about um a comment piece about kind of how joyless it can be to be a pop fan at the moment with like the struggle to get tickets for the era's tour and feeling like which has just gone on sale in the uk and europe feeling kind of very excited yeah. by musicians like fan horrible fan culture online and stuff like that and some of the comments oh yeah in the comments underneath are like well you don't have to engage with this blah 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 you can go and see a great band in a pub every night of the week for free and i do think that that is a real false dichotomy like you're not going to get the same joy out of going to see like a pub band as you are from seeing your favorite pop star but i do i do definitely agree that it's important to if you are a music fan to sort of nurture both sides of it you know i did my time in the eras tour trenches on monday and we're going to see edinburgh <laughs> next year but also coming from a really rural place which is not represented because it doesn't have a huge amount of like uh 
It doesn't have a music scene of national importance, particularly. It's not represented in the music press. It's not really a place that's like particularly represented in like the national media anyway, outside of like very entrenched cliches about being a kind of like very beachy, very touristy place. Um, but coming from a place like this, it does really affirm to me the importance of like of the scenes that go on and um, places like this, like we although we didn't have big touring bands that came down you know I have a friend called Liam and he is basically the reason that we had a music scene at all in like the 2000s because he would put on so many local bands he was probably in about eight local bands himself he was sort of like one of the main sort of activists of the scene and that was so important and again sort of led to the formation of my like taste and um mentality and and also like my you know beginnings as a writer and stuff because there was something to write about it wasn't like totally out of reach um and so, right. yeah, I think, I think regionalism is really, really important. Um, and yeah, to come back to Aphex Twin, which we were talking about a minute ago, um, you know, Aphex Twin is one of like the great electronic musicians. He's also from this little town called Lana, which is about two miles like up the road from where I am right now. My great uncle taught him chemistry at school. Uh, when I worked in yeah. the, a movie theater in the main town here, like I served him once. I've seen him at the pub. I think I know where he lives, but not not specifically. Um, but for all that's been written about Aphex Twin, I had never seen him written about in the context of where he's from and how that had shaped him. Um, you know, it would sometimes pop up in, again, in that sort of like very cliched way where it's like, oh, well, it's way out west. It's a peninsula. Like, it's really weird. And, you know, I do, I think that like weirdos thrive in peninsulas because you don't have like bordering influence we've only got in Cornwall. There's one border it, way up in the east of the county, a really long way away. I think it's the longest county in the UK and so you don't you're not influenced by other places it's a real distinct identity that can kind of flourish here um and yeah it was for the um EMP pop conference like several years ago maybe 2016 or 17 um I can't remember what the theme of it was that year but I'd always wanted to go like I'd seen all my you know American music writer friends online talking about going and it just sounded like summer camp for music nerds I was desperate to make it there one day so I pitched a piece about um yeah Aphex Twin uh, Cornish identity within the music of Aphex Twin because I felt like nobody had ever looked at it from that perspective before but it's really really deep in his work both from um there's I forget the titles off the top of my head but there's an EP which mutates a lot of Cornish place names um in in his song titles like and, and to outsiders they might look like nonsense like I think there's a song called Praise and Beeble and that sounds like gibberish to you but i know where praise and Beeble is um yeah and yeah i felt like there were there was probably a lot of depths there that hadn't really been looked at and i was really keen to sort of examine his music through that perspective i love i loved the way you worked in the sort of wiccan perspective that was really interesting to me to think about to think about how different it is you know for an artist that remoteness is really important and creates the distinct work that we hear and it wouldn't be the same you know if it weren't for if it weren't for that stuff that stuff gets in there even without forcing it in there you know it just happens it's like the it's just circumstance yeah totally yeah like um uh, his track didgeridoo one of his earliest tracks he used to dj at like beach raves you know this i think i was an infant if i was even born when these were happening um but he used to <laughs> dj at beach at these big beach raves and they would have to clear the beach by a certain time in the morning otherwise like the police would come and so some rave organizers said to him or at least this is what he said about it we need a song which is going to clear the dance floor and that's where didgeridoo comes from and so it's like this very specific cornish beach rave scene of like the early 90s or the late 80s i'm not sure which um and then he's talked about 
you know, this particular beach and like running up into a cave and feeling this big flange effect and that having an effect on his hearing. And there's um, yeah. a stone here is uh, is granite. And in places with granite, there's higher levels of radon, like this chemical. And he said that he thinks that that has affected him as well. Um, and yeah, with the Wiccan thing, um, I, th- I think the story is that he had a, um, a twin who died at birth, something like that. And, you know, hence the name Aphex Twin. And I thought that there was so much sort of like, demonic presentation in how he presents himself that um in the north of Cornwall there's a museum of witchcraft and so I was just sort of it it wasn't you know it wasn't like I was looking for kind of specific cause and effect but like I wanted to explore a lot of like potential resonances and so I wrote to them just on the off chance to see if they had heard of him um and would talk to me about him thinking that you know perhaps it would be run by some sweet old ladies who might have no idea who Richard D. James was but then it turned out to be run by this like quite cool young guy who had just moved down with his partner and he knew loads about Aphex Twin and he said he had been thinking about these things as well. So I went up to the Witchcraft Museum and we sort of toured it and we talked about um, the, what did he talk about? Like, you know, the idea of like a non-Christian framework in the music of Aphex Twin and in the way that he's presented himself. Um, And yeah, and, and it all kind of like came together it's not that, that you can read that essay on the quietest now um they very kindly published it and it's not me saying like apex twin did x because of y but it i wanted it to of course like atmospheric of like this is how his music hits when you're a person who's like from here and you know this landscape and it makes sense you know because people compare him to like you know stockhausen and he'll be written about in the context of like how he drives with like detroit techno or something like that but he's I just felt like he had never been written about in terms of the actual place where he was from. Um, so yeah. yeah, it was, it was really, really fun to do that. That makes me think about two, two things. One, it makes me think about the, the meat puppets who are from here in Arizona where I, where I'm from and how there's a lot of artists. I mentioned it earlier, people like Lee Hazelwood and Dwayne Eddy and Waylon Jennings, like, artists from Arizona whose music I find like particular resonance in because of the sort of extra psychogeographical layer that I bring to it. You know what I mean? By looking at it from that perspective. But just this week, as of our recording, um, International Anthem, the great record label released a cover of Jamie Branch and um, her bassist, whose name is escaping me, playing the Meat Puppet song, uh, coming down. I don't know if you had a chance to hear that yet. Yeah, I, it's really great. Yeah, I'm sorry, I never got to see Jamie live. I wish I had. As, same here. I wish that I had the chance. I was able to speak with them a few times, and it was fantastic and just a great thinker. But hearing that, um, it's funny the way songs can work because I, I did an event on stage with a couple members of the Meat Puppets a couple months ago and talked about this experience I had hiking a specific mountain in Arizona, obviously not in the middle of the summer (laughs) because I don't have a death wish. Um, But um, hiking this stretch in this really haunted and strange landscape here called the Superstition Mountains. And I was just, I was in this this beautiful place and it's like a nine mile hike to this ranch that's at the core of one part of this canyon. And anyway, (laughs) I cross from this very rocky vista into a valley where there's all of a sudden pine trees, which were so shocking to see. And then you begin this down, downward 
descent and there's only a little bit of these pine trees but that meat puppet song this was years and years ago that meat puppet song coming down entered into my head and it felt like it was playing in my head as i was walking you know and hearing their version of it it was like somehow that version that they did is closer to what i was hearing in my head than the meat puppets version do you know what i mean like uh when you realize that like the specificity of a place imbues art with like a real resonance sometimes if we choose to um take notice of that do you you know what i mean like to me it's like it's such a beautiful way to engage with a piece of work and not one that often like the quickness of online and the sort of decentralized feeling of online kind of unmoors us from that sense of place maybe yeah you know I, i listen to so much music at my desk and you i once read that um psychologically like you don't remember things that you do that are very routine so for example you know if you have a shower every day you don't remember the shower specifically because nothing interesting happened unless like you cut yourself shaving in which case it might stick in the memory and so i I always right about listening to music at my computer it's like nothing distinctive is happening right now unless unless a big musician dies or some sort of like editorial disaster occurs it's just sort of going through the sort of general mental slipstream so i really value i love to drive to music i really love driving um but also taking big walks and listening to music you know i'm really lucky to be in a place at the moment which is stunningly beautiful and you know it's the place where I, i'm from and I, I lived here solidly until i was like 19 um but still whenever i come home i always try and make the effort to go somewhere i've never been before or take a walk i've never been on before and a few weeks ago i took this like five hour round walk because I'd heard about this really beautiful beach that I wanted to walk to. And I queued up a load of music on my phone and had just so many sort of like slightly transcendent experiences on that walk. Two records which really came alive for me on it. I already knew that I loved the Judy Byrne record, but listening to it on the rugged North Coast on an unbelievably beautiful hot day where it's just like sheer azure sky. You're just looking out onto like real turquoise sea, completely alive. Yeah. Um, you know, like on a Saturday afternoon, probably seeing like one person per hour walking in the opposite direction. That out. Have you heard that record? No, I still haven't listened to this record. I'm, I'll I'll get on it though. I can't. Remember. You have my assurance. I can't remember the last time because the backstory of the record is um, her musical collaborator, who was a musician in his own right, Eric Lipman, died really tragically at the age of thirty-one while they were mm. working on the record, and he was like her greatest friend, and they had been partners, like romantic partners, at one point as well. And so the record was mostly written before that, um, but then I think it was basically put away for a year after his death, and then she completed it with Alex Summers, who used to be in um, Alex and John Z, I think, with um, the guy from Sigur Rós. Mm. Um, John Z and Alex—that's what it was called. Um, yeah, and she, I think she tweaked some of the lyrics perhaps after Eric's death, but it's mostly sort of as it was written before with one song that was written completely afterwards. And I can't remember as much as like grief is the backstory to the record. I can't remember the last. It, she's also said, and I, I interviewed her for the Guardian, um, talking about like living and desire as like a sort of memorial, like to somebody who showed her how she wanted to live and desire. And I can't remember the last record that contained like grief and euphoria and self-determination and like just works on so many of these different levels i mean you know it's it's probably like a cliche but when you walk around listening to music which sounds so pure and almost like she's kind of plucked something waiting from another dimension that was just kind of like whole and waiting to emerge or waiting for somebody to choose it um 
that is a like to me that's as euphoric an experience as you can kind of get um so i had a really be- beautiful moment with that record on the walk and then also the pj harvey album i inside the old year dying have you heard that i've listened to it once and it was it's like it was i once is not like didn't uh I I need there needs more there needs to be more uh the great uh Jen Kelly reviewed it for Aquarium Drunkard and she did a great job with it but I listened to it and I could like tell she was right but I didn't get there myself with the record you know what I mean it's like kind of a it's it's a specific kind of mood let's put it that way you know really it's a really slippery record like I interviewed her as well um which was fairly challenging and she's described it as like a sonic netherworld and it's these musical settings of these poems that she wrote in this this big narrative collection that came out last year called All Am, which is really good and tells a really specific story over the course of one year in mm-hmm. a girl's life. But the record just picks 12 different poems from it and they they don't sort of like add up to a particular story. There's no um, like a particular thinking behind the, the poems that were chosen. It was just what sounded good to her. And so, and musically, it's very slippery as well. It sort of hovers like the mist over a landscape and it's a lot of like very... This, yeah, sort of like misty, kind of eked out since, kind of like a pastoral kind of post-punk record in parts. Um, and the fir- I remember the first time I heard it, because I, I got sent it quite early on and could I, was, listen- was able to listen to it on this app on my phone. I listened to it while out running and it's like absolutely not running music. And yeah. it, took, <laughs> it took quite a long time to work its way in. But again, it was on that walk, perhaps being in like a very natural environment and also just having the space to just hear it for what it is no screen in front of me, no in, no intention or anything to think about other than follow the coastal path that way and just keep going for hours and hours. You know, it's I, I guess it probably speaks to the fact that it's really rare that we just make that space to listen to music and do nothing else. Yeah, and to me, it's so rewarding to be reminded of it because it's just, it's really important. I had an experience um first off you using the term pastoral post-punk really like that's i was like okay yeah 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 that's that's great i felt i was um recently listening i was in ireland with my wife becky and and of course ended up listening to some u2 records because i have to um but i ended up listening mostly to the Passengers record, which is the thing they made with Brian Eno, like a fake soundtracks, but also the Unforgettable Fire. And I found myself thinking, this is like a pastoral post-punk record. And then realizing, for me, talking a little bit about like that regional view, right? Like I started thinking about big big country and like uh, all these bands that have that sort of like somehow a pastoral post-punk sense and realizing how many of them were rooted in a similar place, right? Like Ireland or Dublin or, or around there, or the Water Boys, a group who slowly I am beginning to wrap my head around. I found the Water Boys annoying for a long time. Um, I don't know why, but now all of a sudden it's starting to make a lot of sense to me, you know? So pastoral post-punk, I like that as a term. Um, I feel like the Water Boys are almost having a moment. What's his name? Jack a- Jack a- Antonoff covers Hole of the Moon, and maybe Fiona Apple do Hole of the Moon. She's done some. Maybe she's done one or two Water Boys songs. F- Fiona Apple's also done it. She is, of course, you know she do- she brings like a whole different like cool vibe to it. You know, I lo- yeah. I but I actually I like 
it's just a good song. I can see why people would want to do it. It does sort of sound like a Springsteen song. His maybe that's just because I'm hearing Jack Antonoff do it, so everything becomes a little Springsteeny in his hands. But that's a long way around of saying I was on a flight recently also and finally listened to all of the lana del rey record the most recent one the uh, did you know there's a tunnel under ocean boulevard kind of a kind of a long title in a in a uh yeah fiona-esque move but um i had i just hadn't ever had and like an hour and a half to devote to it or whatever you know it's kind of a long record and i was just on a flight and i had downloaded it to my phone i didn't have wi-fi you know and it was like okay, so now you're going to give this a listen. And just the, I was just on a flight. It's very mundane circumstances, right? But it didn't feel mundane. It felt like kind of bizarrely, like I was thinking about where I had been. I was thinking about what we were doing. I was thinking, and I'm listening to this thing. And that's all I was doing was listening to the record. And when I finished it, I was like, I feel like I just watched a David Lynch movie. You know, that like refreshing feeling of like not doing something, not dividing your attention, just... That's why that the thing you said about like routine and the roboticization of everything, or the robotic motions that we go through, like I think online living replicates some of that. It all has become so same, samey that it's hard to find any signal in all the noise you know and so i think as we're all trying to recalibrate remembering that you can take a walk with a record is like a really truly it's a it's a really cool thing to just focus on yeah like i always try and remember how how easy it can be to have like a real transcendent moment with something with a record so like you know i've I've got a lot of julie Byrne transcendent moments recently but like i was driving back from seeing my grandmother who lives like a 45 minute drive away and it was this beautiful beautiful day and it sort of felt like I was driving slightly up a hill and I was listening to this music and there was no clouds in the sky and it kind of just felt like I could drive on up into the sky and I just felt so good and it, like, it's like a memory that's really stuck with me and then you know one that's sort of like the inverse emotionally I was in Berlin last November and Berlin in the winter can be steely and gray and oppressive and insanely cold uh, and I was having kind of a miserable time and I was kind of by I was mostly by myself I was staying with a friend but she was like working during the day so I did a lot of walking around alone but I had just discovered the album um Temple Four by Roy Montgomery do you know him Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I yeah, yeah. Into dry cleaning last year for Mojo, and I had to do like a sidebar where I got them all to like name one influence on the record. And Tom, the guitarist, said that he wanted to play like Roy Montgomery, and I'd never heard of him. And he mentioned he was on Cranky. Uh, he was on in this band called Dadamar, I think, that was on Cranky. And I like Cranky, so one day I looked it up, and I became obsessed with this album, Temple Four. Yeah, it's just like very thick, very cottony kind of like guitar drones. And even though I was having a sad time in Berlin that album kind of like elevated it or felt like this sort of like protection that I could like put on. Um, And yeah, that takes me back there all the time. And then speaking of Bruce Springsteen, like I had never seen him before. He played in London last week um, and I went to see him with a group of friends and most of us were Bruce neophytes. Um, But then the the writer, Sam Sadomsky from Pitchfork, he was over for the show and he wrote a piece about them. And so he was like the guy who knew Bruce. And then like all of us were kind of having our first Bruce experiences. And again, just like, three you know he plays for more than three hours and before the show I thought god am I going to get bored like I'm probably only going to know half these songs it was so euphoric and again there was no distractions we were surrounded by great friends beautiful weather 
probably a lot of drinks the sheer kind of like festive euphoria of a bruce springsteen show and i was so touched by like the male camaraderie on stage and then in the crowd whether it's like blokes with their arms around each other or my absolute favorite site was there was a man you know he looked very kind of like black metal and he was wearing a cap which had like black metal stitching like kind of font on it which read i reek of putrefaction and he was weeping the whole time and all of these things just kind of combined to just like this absolutely beautiful experience and yeah i do you know obviously a, a concert is slightly like inaccessible but i do really try and remember like moments of transcendence with music are not that hard to come by if you kind of make space for them. Um, I'm about to move house yeah. by myself for the first time. And the, one of the things I'm looking forward to most is just like putting on music and laying on the couch and not doing anything else. Yeah. You know, it really is. It's crazy. I like just hearing you go through those memories. Like I found my, like brain flashing like i was had one of those view uh those like uh <laughs> yeah. to- the, the view screen toys <laughs> yeah like because i'm just like remembering like i'm remembering listening to like nick a nick low cd the best of nick low on yep rock driving back from my grandfather's funeral that sounds insane but i just remember that was what was in the car i didn't put it on on purpose it was just what i had in the car you know and driving and just sort of having this sense of just real lifeness you know like it wasn't even like a profound thing it wasn't that i was hearing the songs and feeling this profound sense it was just like i was really feeling that weird moment and it was just there and i was experiencing it that's another thing that can happen so it's like we can have these transcendent things and i have seen bruce three or four times and each time something gets through like that is beyond you know like there's a sense of um just a sense of like you said euphoria it it of course bums me out that like it was so hard for people to get tickets to his shows and that somebody who is like even lifelong espoused that like sacred connection you know still has to deal with these insane hoops that people have to jump through in order to get into the show happen on this tour like you know Yeah. yeah yeah But then also, just like you said, the thing that also I think so much about music and what makes me feel so continually drawn to talk about it with people like yourself and so many others is that sense of like, also when you see Springsteen, I only got to see him with Clarence once, um, and then Clarence has been gone all of the other times, and the ghost is there, like you sense the loss, you know what I mean? Like, or, or... you know Danny the the keyboarder sort of like they're gone but like there's still this like sense in which they're there kind of reminds me of I saw the Beach Boys on their 50th anniversary tour uh and they did it was I think the last time Brian toured with the band and they did this part where they showed Carl and Dennis on like the screen and Mike Love was there which of course sucks because he's the worst but um but it was still cool because it was it did he sounded good you know what I mean and like but you see these guys and you realize like wow these people the people on stage have a connection to this music that goes even beyond what we do and then you're stuck in this feedback loop and it's like to bring things all the way around to the sort of social media feedback loop that you were talking about it's an example of a feedback loop where it's not deteriorative. You know what I mean? Like it's not destroying the connection. It's strengthening it. And to me, like that's the thing that is so 
crucial. We have to just keep our eyes on that as like an idea that music allows us access to that space. And so getting a chance to dig through your work, getting ready for this has been like a reminder of why I love having these conversations. And it's just been so great going through. I'll tell you one other thing. I really loved the little radio special you did for BBC Radio 4, the Dropout Boogie um, (laughs) program. Because I, because I totally empathize with it. I also dropped. I never did university. Right. I did, I did community college. Two two sort of like half hearted attempts at it, you know, um, and then just found myself thinking, I just want to write, you know. So I'm just going to start writing, and it in some ways I'm sure held me back and in other ways I don't feel held back at all you know it's a very strange relationship to navigate and I really loved you talking about it because truthfully it's always been something that I'm like that I'm nervous to admit to people you know what I mean yeah I yeah I quit university or college um twice uh the first time I only went for five weeks but the second time I went for two years and for the, the second time the main thing I got out of it was writing for student media like writing for the student newspaper and then being the music editor and running that section like a tiny little tyrant. Um, I'm sure I made myself very unpopular, but I really enjoyed it at the time. Um, yeah, and it was during those years where I started like writing for NME and places like The Quietus and, you know, the, the sorts of websites where you kind of write for free at first, but you're finding your footing and they get you like, you know, interviews with kind of like people who have got reasonable names. Um, yeah. I, yeah. It, it's uh it was valuable for that reason um yeah i think i I mean i always feel really lucky that i knew exactly what i wanted to do from when i was like you know age like 12 13 pretty much like i knew i wanted to write about music or like interview pop stars at least before i knew that music journalism was a thing so um what what were the I'm sorry to cut you off. I apologize. But who were some of the, but as we wrap up, who were some of the people who, who did, what, what gave you the notion that you wanted to do that? Was it TV presenters? Was it, what was the, what do you remember? Um, yeah, it wasn't TV presenters. Um, it was, so I was seven when the Spice Girls came out. And so I started buying like smash hits and top of the pops magazine and watching top of the pops as well. Um, and so I bought like basically kids pop magazines, um, for the whole time, yeah. like a child and then moved into the sort of more like teen magazines and then enemy. I think I bought for the first time when I was about 14. And at some point in my like very early teens, it occurred to me, like it's somebody's job to do this. And I also loved BBC radio one, which is like the big national pop station here. And, uh, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. every weekday, there was a presenter called Joe Wiley, and she had the thing called the Live Lounge, where art, which is kind of one of the like the foundational sessions. I guess it's the more like mainstream like version of a Peel session or something like that, where big artists would come in and she would interview them live on the air. And I just remember thinking like, I want to do that. I want to like interview musicians that I really like. And so it was some combination of loving her and like kid pop magazines and NME that just made me realize like this is somebody's job and how do I make this my job living 300 miles away from where anything happens yeah yeah now you could host a podcast but back then you had to get into journalism (laughs) yeah yeah exactly well it's been really great chatting with you about all of this and I really appreciate you taking the time um like I said, it's been really a lot of fun to engage with the work and think about some of these um, 
weighty topics with you and i really appreciate you joining me i'm so happy to be on i you know i listen to almost every episode it's one of my favorite podcasts i think you're such a great interviewer and it's rare you know you interview some of my favorite musicians and it's rare to get them rare to get to hear them talk at that kind of length so really my pleasure Thank you for listening to Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Art for the show this week was assembled by Dakota Brown. Our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his discography of gorgeous library music. Find more by visiting mastin.bandcamp.com. Our executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time each and every Wednesday. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. And hey, you've probably noticed there's another show in the Transmissions feed. I'm so excited for you to dig into No Way Out, an oral history of sunburn, Hand of the Man, curated and produced by J. Kelly Davis, presented by TalkHouse and Aquarium Drunkard, and it's great uh, freaky DIY NPR vibes. I'm such a fan of what they've done with that show, so be sure to check it out. Special thanks to Three Lobed Records, of course. Next week on Transmissions, we'll be back with Will Chef of Okerville River, who joins me to discuss Rocky Erickson, Jason Molina, Bill Fay, and much, much more. Be well. In the meantime, this transmission is concluded. <laughs> <laughs>